Greetings, friends and fellow pioneers on the Upward and Onward Trail of Bible Reading. It's August 6th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour podcast, where we encourage you in the healthy regimen of a daily intake of God's Word. We look forward to reading together and spending a few moments reflecting on the major highlights of what we have just read. We find it helpful to hold on to the overarching theme as we discover relevant applications so we don't miss seeing the forest for all the trees. My name is David McAdam, and I'm happy to serve as your tour guide as we make daily excursions to destinations in the Old and New Testaments with a song break in the book of Psalms and an opportunity to draw from the treasure chest of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. We recently started two new books, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament and the book of 1 Corinthians in the New. So let's begin with Ezra, shall we? We are following the reading plan found in the One Year Bible, and you can find it on our website or at the oneyearbibleonline.com website. Also, One Year Bibles can be purchased at your local bookstore. I am reading from the ESV this year, the English Standard Version, and we are beginning with Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. The remnant returning out of Babylon to Jerusalem are rebuilding the altar. Ezra 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of every one who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians, and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus king of Persia. Rebuilding the Temple Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. 
And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Chapter 4. Adversaries Oppose the Rebuilding Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. The Letter to King Artaxerxes In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithradath and Tabil and the rest of the associates wrote to Artaxerxes king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehom, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehom the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records, and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king orders the work to cease. The king sent an answer to Raham the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, 
and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. And this is the sad cliffhanger ending of our reading from the book of Ezra. Now let's take a few moments to reflect upon what we have just read. There are some important aspects to the rebuilding of Jerusalem that are relevant to the work of building up the body of Christ and its expression as a temple of the Holy Spirit in a particular locality. Number one, they were united, the people assembled as one man, in Ezra chapter 3 verse 1. When members reckon themselves crucified with Christ, putting aside fleshly interest, and all are attentive to the mind of the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a manifestation of the unity of the Spirit. The children of God should be characterized by their love for one another and their unity. We find this throughout the Scriptures. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about three thousand souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as any one might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And then in verse 34 of that same chapter we read, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. This is something we are to give attention to being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4 verses 3 through 6. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1 verse 27. Secondly, not only were they united, but they built the altar first. Ezra chapter 3 verse 2. 
Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And in verse 6 we read, From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Their first action, when back in the land, was to approach God in the way He had appointed, that is, by the altar. This speaks of a recognition of our sin and the awesome privilege of reconciliation through the God-appointed sacrifice to come. The lives of each member in the community needs to be centered at the cross of Christ. The cross is the ground of our redemption. It is the place where we recognize our common need and our common altar. The cross is the basis for our forgiveness. There is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. The cross is the basis of our unity. There is no unity apart from the cross of Christ. There is no unity when the self-life of our Adamic nature is on the throne. Unity reigns when there is only one life that is shared and expressed in believers. Unity reigns when all can say, For to me to live is Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Whereas conventionally, one would build the walls first to secure a city or build a foundation for a magnificent edifice, in God's economy, the priority is to come to the altar. It all starts with the altar, the cross of Christ. The Christian life starts not with our doing anything for God, but with a recognition of what God has done for us in the person of His Son, who offered the sacrifice of Himself on the cross. He who died as our substitute in death did so that we might experience Him as our substitute in life. He lives in us by the power of His Holy Spirit. So not only are we to be, number one, united, or number two, prioritize the altar, adhering to the cross of Christ, but number three, and all things, the word of God is to be obeyed, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 2, as it is written in the law of Moses. Faith binds itself to God's self-revelation in the word. Our authority is the word of God. We cannot walk by faith unless we yield ourselves in humble submission and obedience to the word of God. God had made his will and priority known in his word. That is why building the altar and honoring God's work with sacrifices came first. There must be an appreciation of Christ and his finished work of redemption before there can be any participation in building or entering the house of the Lord. In obedience, the people made their sacrifices of thanksgiving and celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 4. Number 4. The people first must recognize the person and work of Christ, giving God worship as prescribed in the Word, before building the foundation or the temple. They were to honor the fact that God faithfully dwelled among them before any permanent temple was established. This fact is reflected in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, commemorating God dwelling with them as they depended on Him during their wanderings for forty years in the wilderness. Number five, finally, once the person and work of Christ is recognized, the foundations and the house are built. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. Working together led to praising and worshiping together. 
the response to the rebuilding of the temple was mixed. Overall, there was a sound of rejoicing, but there were the older men and women who were alive when the Temple of Solomon once stood there. Not only was Solomon's temple more majestic and grander in size, the Shekinah glory of the Lord did not appear in this temple as it had in the tabernacle in the wilderness or the Temple of Solomon. The prophet Haggai would address this concern. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai chapter 2 verse 9. Whereas the tabernacle and temple had the manifestation of the Shekinah cloud of glory, the temple of Zerubbabel, later to be enlarged and known as Herod's temple, would have the Lord of glory minister in it and be the fulfillment of all its ministries. Ezra records the struggles of this pioneering remnant. There were enemies from the outside who wanted to join the building project. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the leaders of the families, knowing that these Samaritans, while seekers of the Lord, were offering sacrifices in their own way apart from the revealed will of God. Therefore they did not have a part with them in the building of the temple of the Lord. They did not have a unity with the core value. They are like those today who profess to be Christians, but have never really owned Christ as their Lord and Savior. This generation of builders also had discouragement coming from the people groups around them who actually hired counselors to frustrate their plans. We can expect opposition if we engage in the work of the Lord. Rehum, the Persian commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes of Persia, falsely accusing those building the temple in Jerusalem of insurrection. The Persian king orders that the rebuilding in Jerusalem stop. The work came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now let's move on to today's reading from the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, through to chapter 3, verse 4. Wisdom from the Spirit. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 3 Divisions in the Church But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. 
I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And this concludes our reading from today's New Testament portion in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul explains that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the wisdom from God that is outside the box of human wisdom. It solves the problem of how lost humanity, dead in sins, subject to the prince of the power of the air, by nature separated from and condemned by a holy God, can be fully forgiven, cleansed, and made right with God forever. God's wisdom is found in the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. This work of redemption was ordained and destined for our glory before time began. God used the wrath and unbelief of men, the devil's hatred for God, the jealousies of the Pharisees, the lack of integrity of Pilate, to put his holy Son to death and accomplish the greatest work in time and eternity. This is what we learn in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Also in Psalm 76, verse 10, the psalmist tells the truth, For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. God's wisdom is the cross. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. The Holy Spirit makes known to us what is outside the box of our limited sense knowledge and self-oriented reasoning. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The wisdom of the so-called intelligentsia cannot apprehend the depths or the heights of God's work on the cross. How is this wisdom made known? Paul declares that it is not through the persuasive words of human understanding, but the foolishness of presenting the gospel facts, promises, witnesses, and demands. It is through what seems to be foolish to many, the preaching of the man who lived more than 2,000 years ago. The son of David, who claimed to be the son of God, was born in Bethlehem of a virgin, under the law of God. Unlike any human being before or after, he fulfilled the law as the perfect embodiment of God's righteousness. He willingly offered his sinless life as a substitute, a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross to satisfy God's justice on our behalf. God declared this work effective by raising him from the dead. The Gospel Events What he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4 to Christ died for our sins what it means, his death is the needed a perfect atonement according to the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 53. He was buried, evidence of his death. He was raised on the third day. What it means, he was the sinless sacrifice according to the scriptures in Psalm 16 verse 10. And then we learn of the gospel witnesses. What he did was witnessed by the scriptural prophecies. What he did was witnessed by those who saw him risen. A limited list is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5-9. through 9. He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In Acts chapter 26, verse 26, these things were not done in a corner. So we learn of the gospel events, the gospel witnesses, and then there's the gospel demands. First of all, there's repentance. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Also, Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verse 47. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. The gospel demands repentance and faith. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So not only do we have the gospel events and the gospel witnesses and the gospel demands, but we also have the gospel promises, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The apostles preached the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verses 44 through 48, Jesus told his disciples that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he said. And then there is the promise of a new life, through the regenerating and indwelling Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, the third person of the Trinity, who regenerates, illuminates, indwells, empowers, endows, and enables believers to apprehend all that is offered to them in the will of God. So we have the gospel events, the gospel witnesses, the gospel demands, the gospel promises, and the gospel affirmations, which are Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Jesus as Savior. He is risen from the dead. As Lord, he is worthy of our obedience. As Savior, he is worthy of our trust. This work of Christ on the cross provides the only true foundation for all of God's blessings to humankind. Paul concludes that spiritual men cannot discern spiritual things by natural means. Neither can the natural man understand the things of the Spirit by the employment of his own natural capacities. Having the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Now let's move on to the book of Psalms, Psalm 28, verses 1 through 9. The Lord is my strength and my shield. A Psalm of David, Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of His hands, He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This concludes our reading from the book of Psalms. David cries out to the Lord because of his distress. Was it because of the treachery of his son Absalom who conspired against him and usurped his authority when he took the throne? We don't know. In the first five verses, we find him struggling with what he believes to be unanswered prayer in verses 1-5. through five. But through it all, he grows in a realization that the Lord truly is the solid rock whom he could count on. The psalmist calls upon his rock and pleads that he would hear and vindicate his cause. But God's delays are not denials. The Holy Spirit witnesses to the spirit of the worshiper that the rock does not change. God is forever faithful. The rock is a symbol of reliability. In every case but one in the Bible, the rock is a symbol of deity. The only time a rock is speaking of a man is when there is the God-man in view, the revelation of the Christ, in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The second half of the psalm finds the psalmist singing rather than sobbing. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank him. Psalm 28, verses 6 and 7. In the close of the psalm, David shares what he learned about who the Lord is in relationship to those who put their trust in him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Psalm 28, verses 8 and 9. And now we go to the final stop on our Bible tour today, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and to reflect only after making vows. We need divine wisdom for our human walk. Don't make premature judgments about whether something or someone is holy, and don't make foolish vows. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, rock of our salvation, our steadfast and ever-present help, thank you for providing the altar of the cross. We humble ourselves afresh before the revelation of your infinite love that was poured out in the self-giving sacrifice of your Holy Son, Jesus. It is there we find our common altar, our common ground, and see our common need for mercy. It is there that we find forgiveness, peace, and life everlasting. Your Holy Spirit's indwelling makes real the psalmist's claim that you are the strength of our lives. Keep us from pseudo-unity 
any pretense of unity that is not based upon the truth of who you are and what you have done in your Son. We endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit by putting to death the works of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. How wonderful it is to recognize that our unity comes from having Christ as our life. This is what we have in common. Our co-crucifixion, our co-burial, our co-resurrection, our co-ascension, and our being seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are sharing in one life, and indeed, how good and how pleasant it is. Thank you for joining us on today's excursion through the One Year Bible, and God willing, we will continue our journey tomorrow. We love hearing from those in our Bible reading community around the world, so feel free to email us at podcast at newlife.org. And if you'd like to know more about New Life and its ministries, you can go to our website, newlife.org. And there you can subscribe to our daily email, which gives a written commentary of our one-year Bible readings. So until next time, Shalom. May the peace of our loving Lord be with you.